1: Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's story is from the press newsroom and it's called A Lonely Death at Horseshoe Lake. It's written by senior journalist Charlie Mitchell who joins me now. Hi Charlie. Hello. Well, the clue's in the title, A Lonely Death at Horseshoe Lake. Um, who died at Horseshoe Lake? How did, how did you get interested in this?
2: Right, so the, uh, the lonely death here is a, a person named Frances Rawling who had lived in the suburb called Horseshoe Lake for uh, nearly 20 years. The reason that Frances was newsworthy uh, for me is that she lived in a part of the city that was red-zoned after the earthquakes um, in 2010-2011. And she basically lived in the ruins of this old suburb by herself, um, and she'd been there for by herself for at, nearly a decade And so this is obviously an unusual place for someone to live, and it's literally the only building in this very large green area. Um, So naturally it was uh, something worth looking into. Um, And I'd kind of been aware of her uh, in the past. We've obviously reported on the people who have stayed in the red zone. Um, And the reason we haven't really gone deep into her story is that she's quite vulnerable being out there by herself, and you'd essentially be announcing where she lived if you highlighted it too much um so last year i I kind of decided to have a look and see what was happening with Frances, and i discovered that she had died um a few months earlier and not only had she died but she had been dead for some unspecified amount of time in her house which obviously is a very a very sad thing but it also suggests um something about her life, I think. And from there, um, I just tried to answer a pretty basic question, which was why did she stay in the red zone after everybody else had left? I think I ended up with quite a complicated story about someone who did not have an easy life, um, but managed to endure through some quite incredible circumstances, I guess.
1: So you've talked a bit about the red zone, which we here in Christchurch know a lot about. It's a phrase we're familiar with and probably others immediately after the quakes. But there's a big part of Christchurch that we're talking about when we say the red zone, thousands of houses that have gone. So what is the red zone? Just tell us a little bit more about it. And and then there's a handful of people living there, no one living there?
2: I guess it's not really one big contiguous area. It's kind of these patches of the city, mostly in the east of Christchurch along the Avon River. Mm. And obviously these are the areas that were affected by liquefaction most of all, and they were sort of written off after the earthquakes. It was basically decided you cannot live here, the, the land is too stuffed really. I, I think before the earthquakes, it was probably about 10,000 people were living in these red zoned areas, um, and virtually all of them left. They took their, their settlements and moved. Um, it's not the most pleasant place to live. Uh, but yeah, there, there were some people who, for whatever reason, either decided to stay or, or, or were kind of forced to stay. Um, Francis was one of those. And I think now there's probably fewer than five people still still living in the red zone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone has their own reason. But yeah, obviously to stay in that environment, is, um, you have to be an interesting kind of person, um, which obviously is the case with Francis Rawling.
1: And as we'll hear in this story, uh, tracking down information about Francis's life was a bit of an exercise, and you had some developments on that front after the publication of this story. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, we did. Um, actually, the, the very next day after the story was published, um, we managed to get in contact with Francis's half-sister, uh, Kim Rogerson, who lives in Cairns in Australia. She did not know her half-sister had died, sadly. Um, She found out through her story. But I spoke to her at length and she managed to fill in some gaps in in Francis's life and answer some questions. They had a very close relationship, even though uh, Kim only discovered Francis existed when she was in her 30s. They had a very, very difficult family relationship, um, which she described in, in quite a lot of detail. And yeah it was actually a good outcome because now kim will hopefully get some of the belongings francis left behind um some of the photos and and treasures and things she had in her house and yeah it, it kind of gives a little bit of closure to the story because for nine months no one had any idea who the next of kin was and now we have it it's uh it's it's kim she's um clearly loved her her, her sibling francis and um we will hopefully um, get some of her memories.
1: All right, let's hear the story. We'll link to that other story in the notes for this episode. Here is Charlie, for the first time, reading his story, A Lonely Death at Horseshoe Lake.
2: They found her body on a cold day in June inside the lonely house by Horseshoe Lake. There was no forced entry, no sign of foul play, Its 80-year-old inhabitant had simply died. A coroner swiftly rendered his verdict, heart disease abetted by chronic renal failure, and closed the case. No inquiry needed. It was a normal death at a normal age in highly abnormal surroundings. Francis Rawling lived in the ruins of an abandoned suburb in East Christchurch. She haunted the creeping wetlands, the swooping lake, the native forest bursting through fruit trees and garden shrubs, a lonely figure among the fading neighborhood watch signs, the grey roads crumbling into dust. She owned one corner of this post-apocalyptic landscape, a tidy brick house painted a pleasant yellow, matching the heaving lemon tree by the front door, a snug little cottage in a deep, dark forest. Rawling once had thousands of neighbours, who left one by one. She didn't join them. She carried on mowing the lawns and trimming the trees, careful not to disturb the honeybees going about their business in hives beneath a bedroom window. She mooched around her house free of technology and surrounded by memories. She distributed sunflower seeds to eager magpies from her back step and marvelled at the swelling population of wading birds. The occasional dog walker would stumble across her house and she would regale them with stories. That's what Rowling was doing when she was last seen alive in late April. Her body was found 50 days later. Precisely when she died in April, May or June is unknown. The house had given it away in the end. As autumn turned to winter, weeds crept through the cracks of the driveway and the lawns became overgrown. The drawn curtains were tinged with yellow a boundary fence collapsed. The house had succumbed to its surroundings, submitted to the red zone. A dog walker hadn't seen her in a while and requested a welfare check. This is where someone's life story might usually end, but Rawlings' death had a curious epilogue. When most people die, a loved one will know within hours. It might take a week or two in complicated cases, but Rawlings' next of kin still doesn't know she died, because no one can find them. She did not have a partner or children. She did not use the internet and only reluctantly used a cell phone. Her will, found amongst her belongings, was to the point. She wanted her modest estate bequeathed to the cancer charity canteen and to be cremated with her grandmother. Without a next of kin, the usual post-death process dragged. There was no one to receive the body or arrange a funeral. Nearly six months later, there had been no death notice, no memorial service, and no public comment on Rawlings' death. The old house decayed further. Thieves raided the power lines for copper. The weeds grew ferociously, swallowing her garden. It is tempting to make assumptions about Rawlings' life based on her death. A hoarder, perhaps. Someone on the margins. A forgotten person. But Rowling defied simple categorization. She had friendships spanning half a century. Friends fondly recalled her acts of kindness and shared anecdotes about intense life experiences they'd shared. Even in her final years, Rawling had occasional visitors who traipsed through the red zone to see her. And yet, the fact she went unseen for months, living in isolation within a major city, raises a question. Thousands of people left their communities and built new lives in the aftermath of a shared disaster. Why didn't Francis Rawling? roar in the night, broken windows, mud oozing from the earth, shadowy figures staggering bleary-eyed from their homes. Such was the beginning of the final chapter of Frances Rawlings' life. She had moved to Christchurch five years earlier, leaving her Kaikoura home, a little place perched above the wild sea, darkened by the looming mountains, and settled into the placid surrounds of Horseshoe Lake. The lake itself is an imposter, a lake only on paper, resembling a muddy stream, green and dark in the bush. It's actually a disconnected branch of the Avon River, a phantom limb that loops in a horseshoe shape. From above, the suburb looks like a green thumbprint. Horseshoe Lake was one of the nicer parts of the East, a Fendleton vibe without Fendleton prices. Rawlings home at 18 Tasman Place was one of the best, tucked away in a quiet cul-de-sac away from the main streets, around 100 metres from the lake. She was on friendly terms with her neighbours. Don Creera, who lived across the street, had been in Horseshoe Lake since the late 1960s. It was very nice, he said. Everyone looked after each other. We still see neighbours from that area. Rawling, he recalled, was just an ordinary person. Private, but not unfriendly. No one bothered her, and she kept to herself. Its end came about abruptly. Horseshoe Lake had been built in the era of engineering hubris, where unruly landscapes could be tamed with pumps and pipes. To drain the land for housing, the city built its largest pump station nearby to briskly dispose of unwanted flooding. Some houses were immediately written off after the September earthquake. The aftershock the following February finished off the rest. Horseshoe Lake was red-zoned. The land had sunk below sea level. One by one, with a feeling of grim ceremony, houses were bulldozed and their occupants moved on. A poem appeared in the window of a house on Tasman Place. You are more than just mortar and brick, for us you were a gift, a safe haven where we once lived. Others stayed for a while, battling for the compensation they were owed, which in many cases came slowly or incompletely. That was a very upsetting time, kri said. The whole thing was terrible, just terrible. He lives on the other side of the city now and misses his old community. He still hasn't received a full payout. Eventually, everyone in Horseshoe Lake went, willingly or otherwise. All but one.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Jens Christensen is rummaging through cardboard boxes lined against the wall of a storage unit. Most are filled with junk. Hardcover books about gardening or diving, old coins and bottles retrieved from shipwrecks, boxes of photos, the assorted detritus one gathers in a life. He picks up a photo dated 2008. People are posing. The caption reads, Time with Rachel. Who are they? Christensen says. We've got no idea. He picks up a document. Last letter from Vinnie. Christensen reads. He sighs. I don't know who Vinnie was. Frances Rawling had no online presence. She had no relatives in New Zealand and was estranged from most of her family. She left objects that held sentimental value. She presumably wouldn't have kept them otherwise. But they are impossible to understand without context. It's like finding a code without a cipher. When he heard his old friend had died, Christensen leapt into action. He worked for the police in his younger years and was trained to consider the what-ifs. A house in the red zone would be a target for vandals, he thought. If they didn't move quickly, the place would be burgled or torched. Within days, he had assembled a posse of Rawlings' friends to comb through her house. They worked all day collecting any valuables to save for the estate. There wasn't much. A trailer load of furniture went to an auction house. So did a gold-embossed sewing machine. Some old dive tanks were sold off. Everything else remains in purgatory scattered in boxes for the next of kin, should they emerge. Rowling had always been intensely frugal, Christensen said, someone who lived on the smell of an oily rag. When a shipwrecked near Kaikota, Rowling had recovered the tins of food on board and ate them, even where the labels had washed off. She could make a 50 cubic foot oxygen tank last longer than anyone else in her scuba diving days. She even breathed frugally. But Christensen was surprised at the empty space in Rawlings' red zone house, the bare cupboards, a nearly empty fridge. There was just nothing at all, he said. Several times a year, he trudged through the empty streets of the red zone to see Rawling. a task made more difficult over the years, by the council putting the gate further and further back. On his final visit, two months before she was last seen alive, Rawling was in good spirits. Christensen was thinking then about the what-ifs. What if you get sick? What if you die here? It was on the tip of my tongue whenever I visited, but I never got around to it, he said. I wish I had now. When they found her body, the police contacted Christensen, who, in the absence of relatives, has helped coordinate the estate. That's why he's holding onto boxes of her stuff and trying to find a next of kin. In one box, he's looking for a specific photo, one of the few of Rawling in existence. It was one of two used in the funeral program. The first shows Frances standing in front of her house, grinning for the camera, captioned, Remembering Francis Rawling. The other shows a man holding a crayfish. His grin is identical. The caption reads, Remembering Roger Rawling. There had been discussion about using both photos, both names. To me, it told the story, Christensen said. Roger Alfred Frank Rawling was born in Porthcall, a seaside town on the south coast of Wales. Her father was in the Royal Air Force, hence Rawlings initials, and her mother worked in a dress shop. Frances went by Roger for most of her life and presented as male. It was only in retirement that she adopted the name Frances. It's unusual to report on someone's birth name after they've transitioned, a practice known as dead naming, but Rawling didn't mind being called Roger even when she was Francis. Both were part of her identity. Rawling was intersex, born with sex characteristics that did not fit the male or female binary. For that reason, we're referring to her as Francis and using feminine pronouns, but references by others will be preserved. The condition was poorly understood when Rowling was born. Intersex people were often categorized as either male or female and raised accordingly. Rawling was assigned male at birth and raised as Roger even as her own preferences tended otherwise. It was an upbringing by her account filled with casual cruelties and isolation. She once saw her father build a model submarine and give it to the boy next door. She told friends her parents had disowned her when she was seven, leaving her to be raised by grandparents. Later attempts to reconnect with her parents were rebuffed. When she was 19 and about to move to New Zealand, She went to tell her parents she was leaving. They slammed the door in her face. It was 1963 when Rawling and her grandmother, Ruby Box, boarded a ship called the Corinthian and moved to Christchurch. The pair lived in a bungalow in Sumner a few streets back from the beach. Rawling was a locksmith by trade, but her passion was the sea. She quickly built a reputation in the burgeoning diving community. In 1969, she appeared in the press after discovering a Māori artefact while skin-diving off the Kaikoura coast. This discovery confirms the exciting possibilities of underwater archaeological research in New Zealand, the director of Canterbury Museum said at the time. As a member of the Canterbury Underwater Club, she mentored others. When I joined the club, there were a few people that looked after me, showed me how to dive properly and safely, how to fish, how to boat said Paul Reed, a close friend. One of those people was Roger, who showed me incredible kindness and generosity. Her engineering skills, mostly self-taught, were remarkable. In the early days of underwater photography, she welded together a box made of perspex and stainless steel. When she worked as a commercial fisher, she built her own fiberglass boat. She was, Reed said, the kind of person who is talented at everything. She was also someone you could trust, even at the bottom of the sea. You couldn't get a better diving chum, he said. He was just a great bloke to share those times with. When Don Scott, a former member of the diving club, needed help with something, he knew Rowling was someone to turn to. I built my first spare gun with him, he said. He was right into helping people interested in diving to get into it. I'll always be grateful for that assistance when I was a novice diver. And yet, despite these friendships, Rowling was instinctively private. She would withdraw from others, including those trying to help. Roger had a hell of a lot of friends, but he had a way of pushing people aside, one friend said. A lot of people felt Roger had it in for them, and that he would push them away. But that was just Roger. He had to live with so much. There were few support groups for Rowling to lean on to better understand her intersexuality. When an expert on hormonal conditions gave a seminar in Christchurch, a friend offered to take Rawling. She stayed after the talk and chatted to the speaker, who later sent her 53 pages of material. It helped Frances understand a bit more about what was going on, the friend said. Life became harder when she transitioned. She told friends she had left Kokoda in part due to judgment from the community. She said she had been harassed and abused for her appearance, kids threw rocks at her. In Christchurch, one cafe refused to serve her, she told a friend. Her private nature, some believed, was less a preference and more a reflex, a way to protect herself. I think it was more about who he was, what he was, Christensen said. Yeah, definitely.
1: Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've gotta take them on a journey. <laughs> oh the journey. Yeah, of course.
2: <laughs> the ones who remained in the red zone, those who couldn't be shuffled off the land, became known as the Quake Outcasts. They each had their reasons. John Taylor, the last person in the Avonside Red Zone, was a gardener who loved trees and hated paperwork. A sign on his fence warned intruders they might be shot in the buttocks. He was uninsured when the earthquakes happened and was found dead in his creaky villa in 2017. Martin and Ray Francis, who live in Bexley, have refused to move. They believe the process has been unjust. In protest, Martin launched a long-shot political bid against Jerry Brownlee in the Isleham electorate, but failed to unseat him. They still remain even as the council threatens to move the flood wall protecting the house from the river. Rowling had a different reason for staying, a sadder one. She had been insured during the earthquakes through a small Queenstown based company called Western Pacific. The company covered several hundred properties in Christchurch, most of them businesses. But around six weeks after the February earthquake, the company went into liquidation. Its active policies, including rulings, were cancelled. The company had been mismanaged. It was overexposed. There would be no payout. The government bailed out some insurers. Western Pacific pleaded for the same treatment, but was told no. The company's impact on the overall recovery in Christchurch is likely to be small, and its failure was expected to have a very limited impact on insurance markets, cabinet papers from the Times said. The effect on Rawling was profound. She was a retiree with a damaged and uninsurable house in a neighbourhood that would soon no longer exist. Roger felt aggrieved about not being paid out by the insurance company, said Krira, her neighbour, who spoke to her regularly after the earthquakes. It's all he talked about. As a consequence, Roger was left with nothing, that's why he stayed there, Krira said. By 2015, only a few houses remained in Horseshoe Lake, including one other on Tasman Place. It went too. By 2016, she was alone. Roger really got screwed over, said Scott, the diving friend. No one really knew what he would do. The system just wasn't looking after him as well as it could have been. Some stayers enjoyed life in the red zone left mostly untouched for a decade and has reverted to a primal state, a flourishing wetland ecosystem with regenerating forest. The council legally had to keep services running. At Tasman Place, that meant spilling wastewater directly onto an abandoned street nearby and having the red zone rangers periodically collect their rubbish. It's like living in a lifestyle block, Rawling told the press in an unpublished interview in 2016. There's a lot of wildlife, we've got ibis birds, We've got quail, paradise ducks, you name it. And yet, she wanted to leave. For all its splendour, the Red Zone could be a lawless place. People had sex in cars near her house. She would hear gunshots late in the night. Martin Francis, the Red Zone stayer, recalled Rawling telling him about one such incident. Francis was in the house one day, and someone went on top of the roof and started taking the iron off, he told the press. She called the cops and they turned up and walked right past the guy's ladder and knocked on the door. While they were talking to her, the guy climbed down from the roof, put his ladder onto the vehicle and took off. Multiple people independently told the press about an incident in which the armed offender squad descended on Rawlings' house after receiving a report about a meth lab in the garage. Rawling, a keen home brewer, had been making rum with a small still. I get quite nervous here on my own, Rawling said in 2016 describing the strange people and doubtful types that flocked to the red zone. When I get my settlement, I'll be off. I don't like living here on my own, she said. It never happened. No one can be sure why. Rowling had savings and friends willing to help. The council had been wanting to buy the property for years. It was as though she had resigned herself to her fate. She was getting old, slower in her movements. Probably 12 to 18 months ago, Rawling said to me, I should be in a bloody retirement village, Christensen recalled. I said to him then, if you need a hand to get out of here, I'll help you. But that was the end of it. The December sun is ferocious. You can almost see the grass scorching underfoot during a long, quiet walk to the only house in Horseshoe Lake. There have been a few changes since the community's last soul passed on, The street sign at Tasman Place has mysteriously disappeared. Some of the remaining power lines have been slashed. Graffiti on a faded road screams COVID is fake. Rawlings House still stands, boarded up, being slowly absorbed by the regenerating forest. One of Christensen's tasks was to arrange a memorial service. When it finally happened in December, he was surprised at the turnout. 40 people showed up, most of them former members of the diving club, Some drove all the way from Picton. There were tears. She may have had a lonely death, but her life was anything but. The delay was because they wanted to find the next of kin first. On that front, there has been no progress. Rawling had sisters. She was in contact with at least one of them, Kim Rogerson, who had sent a Christmas card to her sibling at Tasman Place. No one has been able to find her. She was born in 1958 and has lived in Brisbane in Malaysia. No Christmas card arrived this year. She is said to look much like Rawling. Her siblings boxes of memories await her. Soon the red zone will transform. Not long after Rawlings death, the council got in touch with the estate about buying the property. It owns the surrounding land. Rolling 600 square metre section is a glaring pocket of private ownership in a vast expanse of open public space. When plans for the future of the area were released in 2019, Horseshoe Lake was coloured blue. It would become a stormwater basin, washed over by floods of the Avon, in recognition that the land should revert to its natural state. It is a fitting tribute to Francis Rowling, who spent much of her life underwater. That
1: was A Lonely Death at Horseshoe Lake on The Long Read from Stuff, written and read by Charlie Mitchell and produced by Jen Black. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. If you listen via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you follow the podcast, you'll get the latest episode automatically. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit
0: stuff.co.nz support.
1: I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues.
0: You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime
1: statistics. No, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo to you without to journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line no, there. But I think It would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. It, it, yeah, I'm not worried about it at all. That's, Nothing if there. On. That sits
0: with you perfectly fine.
1: That's what, that's what we're focused on.
0: Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important,
1: the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts.